got a text from Bill a few weeks ago. The guys lead worship this Sunday and then uh, speak the next Sunday. And I was like, sure. <laughs> and then later on, I'm like, why did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> you start thinking, well, what can you teach on? Or, you know, just in Crossway, I have a focus point of the first and second Timothy, so it's like I was I had my little part to do. So then it was like, well, Lent's coming off, Valentine's Day, and it was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you should just stick, stick to what you know. So um, a few years ago, we started doing a, uh, a Bible study for um, Sunday school time on Colossians, and then we went into Ephesians. And so I spent a lot of time in Ephesians, so I feel pretty comfortable with it. To some extent, um, still a lot going on. So there's a particular passage in Ephesians that I want to talk on today. It's a, a prayer right in the middle of Ephesians. So uh, before we get there, brief overview of Ephesians. So <clears throat> it's a letter written by Paul, probably. Uh, some scholars debate that fact, but. Um, it's all due to discrepancies in the way that the introduction of the letter comes in. It wasn't actually written to Ephesians, and he, I read this thing from R.C. Sproul. It was fascinating, and I wasted too much time like, <laughs> looking yeah, well, at it. Um, about <clears throat> the copies of the letters that came out, you know, they find letters, the originals lost somewhere, but the two that are mainly the biggest ones that they, they really like to use the most didn't have in Ephesians written. So it was probably written as a circular letter to go around to all the, the countries or all the churches in Asia Minor. Um, and so the, the language in Ephesians is a little bit different than the language in any of Paul's other letters. And so there's like a handful of words there that he doesn't use. But because it was a circular letter, it can sort of be, uh, <clears throat> you know, that can be the point that it's written a little differently because it was meant to go around to all the different churches and not just go to one particular church. Um, it's also not one of Paul's, it's, it's a letter that Paul wrote that doesn't address a particular error error, or heresy. So it's this general uh, overview. What he was writing for was to expand the horizons of his readers so they might understand better the dimensions of God's eternal purpose and grace and to come to appreciate the high goals that God has for his church. <clears throat> so he begins his letter um, by establishing the headship of Christ in the first part of chapter 1. Then he goes and gives a prayer to Christians to realize God's purpose and power in the second part of chapter 1. Then he lays down a bunch of steps towards the fulfillment of God's purposes in chapters 2 to 3. Um, he ends this section with a prayer for a deeper experience of God's fullness and a prayer focused on God's power and God's Love, which we'll look at today. So that brings us to uh, <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 14, through the end of the chapter. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul starts this prayer saying, For this reason I kneel before the Father. And commentators are, are divided on how to understand what Paul is saying here. Is he using, by using the term kneel, referring to a sense of wanting to be on his face in a posture of homage and obedience before the kingship of God? Or does he speak of kneeling in the sense of assuming a posture of prayer? The reasons they're divided is that because in the, in the way that Jewish people prayed at the time was by standing up and looking towards heaven. Um, there are, however, instances in the Old Testament and the New where people do kneel in a posture of prayer. In either case, the basic import remains the same. Paul certainly wanted to convey the impression of God's power and express deep emotion and reverence. I mean, have you ever been in those situations where you feel this, you know, this deep emotion and reverence that all you want to do is get down on your knees? You know, you reach that point. That's what Paul is conveying here. It's not just a, you know, a general prayer or praise. It's it's a it's a heartfelt um, expression of emotion. Paul's use of the word father in this part is not only a term of intimacy. In the East, the father is the ruler of the family. It's the one to whom all questions of importance are related and to whom the children, however however old they may be, are expected to defer in obedience. When Jews spoke of God as a father, they meant he ruled the world in which owed him its obedience. He continues on, from whom, the whole, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name, in verse 15. The problem that the translator has with this verse is that we don't have anything in our English language which captures the play on words here in the Greek text. The term that's translated family is the Greek word patria, and refers to all the descendants of a particular patriarch. In one sense, the whole Jewish nation can be traced back to Abraham and be called the patria of Abraham. It is not just referred to a single family union as as we do in our own culture. So, does this whole family in heaven and on earth refer to the elect family of God, namely the church universal? Or is it an allusion to the universal fatherhood of God as creator of all human beings? There's a difficulty here in determining which of those is meant. Um, It makes a little more sense to read it in the NIV, which says, from his whole family in heaven and on earth. Is namely referring to the family of God. The, this family of God incorporates those who are in heaven as well as those who are on earth. Another question may be that if Paul speaks about heavenly members of the family of God, is he perhaps referring to the angelic host that are part of the co- cohort of God that serve him in heaven? Angels are sometimes called sons of God in scripture, and perhaps that's what Paul had in mind. Uh, Throughout this epistle, Paul keeps drawing our attention away from this world and into the heavenly realm. Uh, He speaks a lot about uh, powers and principalities and of angels and the risen exalted Christ. It could be here that he's referring to the family of God who are in heaven as uh, sort of an introduction into the Apostles' Creed, where it says, I believe in the communion of saints. That is, the Church of Jesus Christ includes its membership, believers, from all tribes, all nations, and all times, that we have this mystical fellowship, not only with these brothers and sisters in the Lord who are alive, but of those who are living right now all over the world, but those who have gone into heaven before us. <clears throat> it seems a little bizarre, and in reading all this, every time I read it, it gets even more bizarre <laughs> to me. But if you look at it from this perspective, um, R.C. Sproul talks about, he says, to be a Christian is to be in Christ, in Christ to be in me. 
Every Christian, therefore, is in a mystical union with Jesus. When we die and go to heaven, that mystical union is not broken. Nothing can separate us from the union that we have with Jesus. If anything, our union with Christ is enhanced and intensified after death. So it is a simple equation. If presently I am alive and have a saving relationship with Jesus, I am in mystical union with him. Insofar as I am united to him, I am also in mystical union with everyone else who is likewise united with him. So our unity with all saints living and dead is through our Savior himself. <clears throat> so we don't really know whether Paul is speaking of the heavenly members of his family of God or referring to angels or to departed saints. But in any case, Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is verse 16, first part of 17. So we hear frequently that the language of Christian sentiments like this. Have you asked Jesus in your heart? Is Christ in your heart? It's such a commonplace Christian idea, so widely discussed and mentioned in our heritage that you may find it astonishing to discover this is the only place in the whole Bible that mentions Christ dwelling in our hearts. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> How about that? Just turn into a Valentine's message. <laughs> <laughs> um, this idea is repeated wherever Paul speaks of Christ in us and we in him. But it doesn't locate it specifically in the heart anywhere else but in this passage. So what he's getting at, obviously, is that when a person becomes a Christian and has authentic faith, he has a real mystical union with Christ. So that Christ really comes to dwell, comes to indwell the believer. When we exercise faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is counted towards us and we are justified. At that same moment, Christ, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell inside of us. <clears throat> Paul uses, chooses to choose two different phrases. He speaks of first about our innermost being and then goes on to describe it in terms of the heart. Even though this is the only place in the New Testament where we have a description of Jesus dwelling in our hearts, it's certainly not the only place in the New Testament where the heart is used to describe the innermost center of human life. You know, people talk too easily, perhaps too easily, about inviting Jesus into your heart or having Jesus in your heart. But the danger here is that it's easy for people, particularly in, in Western culture, <clears throat> to imagine that being a Christian simply consists of being able to feel or believe that Jesus has somehow taken up residence in them. Mm -hmm. In fact, Paul speaks far more often of Christians being in Christ than of Christ being in Christians. <laughs> it's important to see our individual experience within the larger picture of our membership of God's family. <clears throat> Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Whatever spiritual power they have, Paul is praying that it will increase so that it will permeate the very depth of their being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ should live not at the periphery, but at the very center of their life. <clears throat> he continues, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The form of these verbs here indicates a past action that is continuing. The Apostle is, mi uh, is mixing his metaphors too. He's using uh, one from agriculture, being rooted, and the other from masonry or building industry, being established or founded. He's asking that those who have been rooted and established in the love of God might not 
be impotent, but that they might have the power to accomplish something. He is praying that our understanding will be able to penetrate one of the great ministries. It's not enough that we understand God to be loving, nor that we understand there to be a love that belongs to Christ. We need divine power to have a deeper understanding of the dimensions of the love of Christ. So we normally talk in, in forms of three dimensions, but here Paul gives us four. Why he does it, he doesn't really tell us, and we don't really know. I remember being a <coughs> kid, and we, it was before we moved to Raleigh, so it must have been elementary and middle school, and I guess I had just learned how to draw cubes, you know? You're at that age where you, you're starting to learn how to draw in three dimensions. It was kind of cool. And so, it, sitting after dinner table with my dad, and it was like, I was excited about this. And then he tried to take it one step further and talk to me about the fourth dimension and time, and, and I was like, really confused at that point. <laughs> but I imagine that's what kind of Paul's getting at here. It's like, there's something beyond that that, you know, he wants us to, to know. <clears throat> He really wants believers to be able to understand that the love of Christ completely and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Verse 19. This is, this is my favorite part of this passage. Do you want everything that God has for you in the full measure of His grace? If you're going to achieve full stature in the Christian life, you need to be filled with the love of Christ, a love that surpasses understanding and knowledge. It's not that it is apart from knowledge, and it's not that it's against knowledge, but it goes beyond the head and comes into the heart. Um, <clears throat> I recently saw a thing on uh, Desiring God from Paul Tripp. He's promoting a new book. And I think the there's a little short four-minute video or something, but it was uh, knowledge doesn't mean maturity. He speaks of academizing the faith and how the book is really written towards pastors and people in, in ministry leadership and how um, our heads can learn faster than our hearts. So it's it's like you... He's, I mean, he gives an example about his wife and having surgery and, and everything and say, it's like he he's saying that he could write the book, and he did, on um, theologically what should happen in these situations. But when he gets into the situation... He doesn't have the heart to do it. You know, it doesn't affect him in that way. It's all head knowledge at this point. I think that's sort of what Paul's getting at here. Um, it's a head knowledge versus heart knowledge. But Paul wants us to know that the love that surpasses understanding. The, the wording here is so beautiful because it's knowing love that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something beyond knowledge? Um, <clears throat> so Paul wants us to know this love that surpasses understanding. He wants us to experience it to the fullness that God intends, and not just touch it and lightly feel it. You know. So then Paul <clears throat> gives a benediction right in the middle of this epistle. <laughs> um, it's as though he says, hey, I'm finished with this theme, and I'm going to turn my attention now to the practical applications. <clears throat> and so he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power... It is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So the locus of God's glory is his church, the bride of Christ. And throughout history, but especially in our day, and particularly in, particularly in the evangelical church, people attempt to displace his glory elsewhere. So he's Paul's instance. To him be the glory in the church. 
God will share his glory with no man, no institution, and no parachurch ministry. The bride of Christ, however, will be so fully adorned with grace, beauty, truth, love, mercy, and righteousness that her glory will be incomparable. So to whom do you ascribe glory? Throughout the benediction here, Paul employs a vocabulary and repetition that is artfully designed to cause wonder and amazement. It's a hyperbole that still falls short of truly expressing how immeasurable is the work of God. In a sense, there can be no exaggeration on how much God is prepared to do for his church, nor for how long. Forever and ever, he will glorify her. <clears throat> so, from verse 14 through verse 21, there's an interlude of prayer in the middle of Paul's epistle. It's a prayer of thanksgiving and a prayer of adoration. It is a prayer of apostolic intercession for the saints that they may grow in their capacity to be filled with the love of Christ. This prayer prepares us for the grand theme that Paul is going to expound on in chapter 4, which has to do with the unity in the body of Christ in the church. But that's another message. So, so let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we bow before you, Lord. A magnificent Father of the most glorious family, Lord. Lord, we ask you to strengthen us by your Spirit. Father, we Strengthen us from your innermost being that Christ may live in us, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that being firmly rooted in your love, we would be able to comprehend every dimension of your love, Lord, surpassing all knowledge and being filled up to the fullness of God. In your name, amen. I'm going to